Hallelujah. Thank you, gentlemen, for praying with me. I'd like you to open up your Bibles this morning to Daniel, the second chapter. Daniel chapter 2. We are currently in a series entitled, She Who is in Babylon, which we have learned is a, a phrase that the Apostle Peter used at the end of his first letter uh, to describe the church at Rome in his day. Peter calls Rome Babylon because the same spirit, the same proud, rebellious, anti-God spirit that dominated ancient Babylon also dominated Rome, the empire of power in his day, and as we found out, has dominated every other world empire since Rome right up to our present day. But Babylon in our present day, as we discover, doesn't wield its influence through a single powerful empire, but rather through many world organizations and global powers all working together to achieve the original goal of Babel, to bring humanity under one empire in rebellion against God, to bring about one government for the whole world. And alongside this satanic effort, the spirit of Babylon continues to oppose God, oppose God's plan, oppose God's people, and will do so. The scripture tells us until Jesus returns again, destroys Babylon, which is the subject of Revelation 18 and 19. But until then, God's people must learn to serve his purpose, to stay on mission, to be spiritually fruitful in the presence of the spirit of Babylon, or what the New Testament calls the world. This is what Paul means in Romans 12 too. Do not conform to the world. What does he mean there? Don't conform to the spirit of Babylon that has always been, always will be, until Jesus destroys it. So the question then is how do we do that? How do we live for God in a way that exemplifies faith, that um, exemplifies hope for the future and love that reaches out to others? Well, that's where the book of Daniel comes in. As we learned a few weeks ago, Daniel and his friends were part of the first group of Jews that were taken captive to Babylon, given Babylonian names, educated in Babylonian ways, and given Babylonian government jobs. In essence, Daniel was taken away from a very, very God-centric culture, Jerusalem, and the worship at the temple in Jerusalem, and taken away to another culture, another society that was completely anti-God, completely foreign, completely different and hostile to God. And the way that he, as a young man, handled that transition, and then proceeded to live in Babylon for decades after that is a model for us of how we can purposefully and joyfully live for God and serve His purpose in our day when nearly all the cultural institutions of power have become hostile to God also. Several decades ago, the cultural institutions such as government and arts and academia and media and so forth, were at least mildly supportive of the Christian faith. You could say that we lived in a somewhat Christian culture. 
That's no longer the case, and it hasn't been for some time. So in a way, in a way, we are all like Daniel, trying to live a life of faith in God while living in Babylon. We are living in Babylon. But we found out that living in Babylon is not without its challenges, and that's uh, certainly the case for Daniel. It's where we left off in the story of Daniel last week. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, and he's threatened to kill all of the wise men of Babylon, including Daniel and his friend, unless somebody can not only interpret that dream, but also tell him what the dream was in the first place, reveal it and interpret it. And upon finding this out, Daniel requests more time, basically a stay of execution. And he gets it providentially from the king, and afterwards goes into a time of prayer with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And during that night, God revealed to Daniel not only the dream, but the interpretation of the dream. But instead of going directly to Nebuchadnezzar, as we might expect, Daniel first goes to God. He goes to God to first praise God for his incredible mercy for what he's revealed to Daniel and what God is going to do through that revelation. And after he's done, after he's done worshiping God, he goes to the king, and that's where we pick it up in verse 24, Daniel 2. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I'll interpret his dream for him. So Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. Then the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, that was his Babylonian name, He says, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what was going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. So three points this morning. How Daniel communicates the dream. That's number one. We're going to look at that. Secondly, then we'll look at the dream itself. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the application or the interpretation of the dream and how that uh, applies to, to us. So first, the way Daniel tells the dream. Secondly, the dream. Thirdly, the interpretation and application of the dream. And I kind of debated whether even spending some time on this this morning, I thought about let's just jump straight to the dream. But there's something here that we need to see that's important to be reminded of. When Daniel revealed the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, he did it in a way that put the focus on God and took the focus off of Daniel. Took the focus off of himself and put it completely on God. And he does this two ways. First, even though he had both the content and the interpretation of the dream, he he does not come to Nebuchadnezzar 
and say, you know, I, I know the dream and I can give you the interpretation. That's what we might expect. Instead, when Nebuchadnezzar asks him, he basically says, no man, including me, can tell you this dream or interpret this dream. But, but, notice how he deflects and directs. There is a God in heaven. Now, that's a great model for life. Deflect, <laughs> right? Deflect and direct people to the Lord Jesus and to the gospel. So he does that. He says there's a God in heaven who reveals mystery. He totally takes himself out of the picture. And Daniel, in, in essence, Daniel says, it's not about me, king. It's not about me. It's all about the God who gave you this dream. And then secondly, secondly, Daniel says in verse 30 that, that God revealed this dream to him not because that he was wiser than anyone else alive. In essence, what he's saying is, God didn't show me this because I am special. God revealed this because it was his purpose to do so, so that you would know the things within the dream. God did it to fulfill his purpose. In essence, Daniel is saying here, I'm not the great one, but I am the servant of a great God. Now, this kind of humility which Daniel kind of manifests here in a, a kind of a, a healthy self-deprecation, is almost foreign to our culture. Where the emphasis is most always on elevating the individual or on self-promotion. We see it in every aspect of our culture. The spirit of Babylon is driven by the need to be seen as better, wiser, more powerful, more attractive than we really are. Did I just describe social media? <laughs> the reason is, is this, is without God at the center of our lives, not only as our creator, but also as our savior and sustainer, without him at the center, without him as, as the foundation, we're forced to look to other things to meet the deep, deep needs of our heart, our need for identity, our need for worth, our need for value. But the problem is, is there's nothing other than God Himself that can truly meet those needs. When we look for these things, value and identity and worth outside of God, inevitably, inevitably it produces a very deep and hidden insecurity, which instinctively compels us to validate ourselves by seeking the approval of others instead of resting in God's love for us revealed in the gospel. It compels us, this insecurity that we don't even see, compels us to compare ourselves with others instead of rejoicing in God's unconditional acceptance of us through the gospel. This Deep, hidden insecurity compels us to measure ourselves by certain self-imposed standards to establish our own goodness rather than resting in the gift of God's righteousness made available to us through the gospel of Jesus. See, the only approval, the only identity, the only value that we need is found in the fact that at an infinite cost to himself, God gave up his son on the cross so that we could be forgiven all of our sins, become his children, and be forever the recipients of his grace, age upon age upon age upon age. 
And when we find our identity, when we find our value, when we find our worth in Him, when we find that in the gospel, we'll be less compelled to validate ourselves, to compare ourselves, or to measure ourselves. And instead, we will learn to find our all in Christ, our everything in Christ, and therefore become more secure, more poised, and more graceful people. Now, you might be asking, how does all this relate back to Daniel's communication of the dream? Well, listen, sometimes, sometimes because we live in a culture of self-promotion, our testimony of how God has blessed us or revealed something to us can actually become more about us than it is about God. Let me explain. There's a fine line between I want people to know how much God blesses me versus I want people to know there's a God in heaven who will bless them if they put their trust in Him. Do you see the difference? It's no nuance. It may seem like a nuance, but it's really two different fundamental views. There's a fine line between I want people to know God speaks to me versus I want people to know there's a God in heaven who will speak to them if they humble themselves before Him. The point is, is I don't want anybody to know anything about me. I want people to know everything about what God has done, what, who God is, and what he will do for them. Daniel says, it's not about me. I'm not greater. I'm not wiser. I'm not special. It's about God. I'm not great. I'm only the servant of a great God. Think about the moment that he is standing in historically. Think about it. He had he had both the dream and the interpretation. And he had the attention of the most powerful man in the world at that time. The complete undivided attention of Nebuchadnezzar. And the lives of many, many hundreds, perhaps more people, wise men, hung in the balance based upon what he would do at that moment. I mean, you have to, have to realize here, Daniel from a human perspective, is the man of the hour. But he presented himself simply as a servant of the great God in heaven. I don't know anything, Nebuchadnezzar, but there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. Paul said it this way, 2 Corinthians, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Jesus said, in the, in the Gospels, there's going to be a lot of times in your life where you'll come to a crossroads where you can humble yourself or exalt yourself to some degree. He said this, here's, here's the lesson, always take the lowest place. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And we're going to find out in the story here, as the narrative goes along, this is exactly what happens to Daniel and to his friends. All right, so here's the dream, verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor 
in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, four, four observations quick. Let's summarize the dream. Number one, the dream was about the future, verse 29, and it had two elements in it. Those two elements were, first of all, a statue, second of all, a rock. The statue, we heard, was huge. It was dazzling. It was awesome in appearance. And it was in the human shape, in human shape, basically with a head, chest, arms, belly, thighs, legs, and feet. There it is. And the statue was composed of several materials. Its head was gold, its chest was arms, and chest and arms was silver, its belly and thighs bronze, its legs iron, and feet made of both iron and clay. Now, this statue, and we'll come back to that later on, we'll find out what each of these are representative of, what they're symbolic of. But the statue, you have to realize, was made. And it was broken to pieces by a rock that was not made. And then that rock became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. All right, we're going to find out what that means in just a second because Daniel now gives the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. Notice verse 36, this was the dream. Now And now we will interpret it king. Another sign of humility, we. Do you notice that? A lot of things are subtle in God's Word. You got to read it, you got to look at it, and eventually it kind of pops out the page. And I did this this morning, I was reading through it, and it goes, we? Who's we? God revealed the dream to Daniel, but he had a prayer team, and he included that prayer team in his report to Nebuchadnezzar. We will reveal or interpret the dream to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air. And wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. The head of gold, again, symbolized Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king, really, that made the Babylonian kingdom the greatest. You know, the Babylonian kingdom uh, kind of was up and down for a period of about 2,500 years. There were different moments where it was greater and lesser and subdued by other kingdoms. But during Nebuchadnezzar's reign, they call it the Neo-Babylonian kingdom, it was the greatest of all kingdoms, very short-lived, but the most glorious of, of kingdoms. And since Nebuchadnezzar was the one responsible for that and the embodiment of all that Babylon was, the gold head represented him, but also, not just him, but the kingdom that he had built. Built, And so the symbolism here, both the head and the gold, are, are right on target. They're spot on for two reasons. First, Babylon had so much gold in it that it was called by Isaiah the city of gold, Isaiah 14. Gold was used copiously to decorate all the shrines and the the public buildings in Babylon, everything was gold and glorious in Babylon. Second, Babylon was the head of all the other empires that would follow because it was the Babylonians that first originated the idea of a world empire. And they're the ones that formulated the policies that would be assumed by all the other kingdoms that would follow the succeeding empire. And so they were like the head that controls the body. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, in a sense, 
were the head of all then the succeeding kingdoms. And this is why it is said the mountain destroys all the kingdoms because all the kingdoms are basically flowing out of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. Now, he says this, after you, verse 39, again, you is the Babylonian kingdom which lasted 87 years, after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Now, historically, the second kingdom was the Medo-Persian kingdom, which was represented here by the chest and arms of silver. Nebuchadnezzar ruled for 44 years. After that, there were two more kings that had short, um, short-lived uh, uh, lives, and then eventually um, the kingdom or the throne was assumed by his son, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is the king who's really famous for losing the whole kingdom in one night. How would you like to have that reputation? He does, though. One night, Belshazzar loses the kingdom to Darius, the Medo-Persian king, 539 B.C., and that's the subject of Daniel chapter 5, which I think we'll get to, Lord willing. Now, the silver arms, right, and the chest of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream symbolized the Medo-Persian empire in two ways. First of all, like the silver was inferior to gold, so this empire, the Medo-Persian empire, was inferior to Babylon, not in terms of size or in terms of how long it lasted, but in terms of its glory and achievement. And also, like the two arms, the second kingdom was comprised of two people, the Medes and the Persians, Medo-Persian. The Persians, of course, were the dominant people group between the two, and so a lot of times when people are referring to this kingdom, they just call it the Persian kingdom. It lasted 208 years. Verse 39, next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And historically, this refers, of course, to the Greek empire established by Alexander the Great in 336 B.C., Alexander was, um, was a genius, and he so revolutionized warfare um, and was so successful in battle that he is said to have wept while he was still in his 20s because there was no more land to conquer. Once again, the symbolism is spot on because bronze was the primary metal used in making weapons of war. After Alexander died at the age of 32, his kingdom was divided among four of his generals into four kingdoms, which is also, this division is also foretold by Daniel in chapter 7. In all, the Greek empire, the Hellenistic version of it, lasted 469 years. So you can see the empires are lasting longer and longer as we go on. Now, finally, verse 40, there will be a fourth kingdom. Strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things into pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. So the legs of iron that break and smash everything, of course, was symbolic historically of the next kingdom that came on the world stage, the Roman Empire, which crushed all of the other kingdoms previously when it conquered the Greek Empire, because again, the Greek Empire had assumed from the Persian Empire, which had assumed from the Babylonian Empire. In essence, when Rome crushed Greece, they were crushing all the other kingdoms that came before Greece. Now, the two legs of iron also symbolized something. They symbolized the dividing 
of Rome into two parts, which eventually happened, the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. The Western Empire kept its capital in Rome for a while, eventually moved to Ravenna, Italy. The Eastern Empire, a.k.a. the Byzantines, had their empire in Constantinople, which today is Istanbul, Turkey. The Roman Empire lasted 622 years. Now, Daniel continues. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. And yet it will have some of the strength of the iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Now, now we start getting into, okay, what is your view of eschatology, Pastor Jeff? I'm not going to reveal it to you this morning. I'm going to tell you, though, several options here, all right? When you read, first of all, when you read verse 32 and 33, it seems that the feet and toes comprised of baked clay and iron are symbolic of a fifth kingdom which some people, of course, believe represents a kingdom that is yet to come, that is yet to arise on the world stage, that will do so, though, in the future, and when this kingdom arises, will produce the Antichrist. And because this kingdom is partly iron, many people believe that it describes a revived Roman Empire, that the Roman Empire will be revived. However, when you read verse 41 through 43, and you can dig into this a little bit later on, it seems like the feet and toes are part of the fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom, or an extension of the divided kingdom, perhaps what we call today Europe. But whether the iron and clay feet and toes refer to either ancient Rome or the extension of Rome in the European Empire today, or the EU, or they are representative of a world power that is still yet to come, the feet of clay indicate that it is a kingdom, or will be a kingdom, that is outwardly appears strong, but inwardly it is weak, it is, it is brittle. That's where we get the expression, feet of clay. Feet of clay means outwardly appears one way, but inside there's a defect, there's something wrong, there's a character flaw. Regardless of your interpretation, though, whether the iron and clay feet are one of the three options that I just mentioned, what really stands out about this, and the thing I think it's most important about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, is that it precisely revealed world history for a period of more than a thousand years. Daniel is in living in about 580 BC. He tells you everything that happens on the world stage all the way to 625 AD and beyond. In fact, it's so amazing, it's so spot on that there's a lot of, um, I guess, uh, what would you call it? liberal scholars who don't believe Daniel even wrote the book of Daniel because the prophecies are just too accurate. Unbelievable. Incredibly accurate. Every detail, and you see the same thing later on in further visions and dreams within the book 
of Daniel. And prophecies like these, and this is not the only one, but prophecies like this in the Bible are one of the many proofs of the Bible's divine inspiration. The Bible is the Word of God and therefore can be completely, absolutely, and implicitly trusted completely when everything else is shaking. And things are shaking now. When things that we thought were solid actually have feet of clay, we have a rock. We have a rock that will never, ever be moved. We will still go through storms, but we will not be moved as long as our foundation is on that rock, the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus urges us in, in uh, Matthew chapter 7 to build our lives, not on the sand of, the, of Babylon, but on the rock of Jesus Christ. And when the storms come, the storms will go, we remain standing. It doesn't make the storms necessarily much easier, but we remain because we have a solid foundation. We have placed our life on the credibility of God's word and the person and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the second thing these biblical prophecies tell us is, is that God is a God who is sovereign. See, the reason God can foretell history so accurately is because He is the Lord over history. See, the reason he's able to foretell what will happen is because he is sovereign over what will happen and because he has the power to make it happen. He is the one and only true God. As Daniel said, there is a God in heaven, the one true God. Now, before we get into, into the height, the climax of Daniel's prophecy, there's one more thing I think it's important to learn from um, the dream of the statue. And that is the decline in the statue. With each kingdom, there seems to be a strengthening, right? You start with gold, and it's replaced with what? Silver, and silver is stronger than gold. And then after that comes brass, and brass is stronger than silver. And after that comes iron, and iron is stronger than brass. But ultimately, where does it end? With clay. The same thing is true in terms of glory. Each kingdom becomes increasingly less and less glorious. We start out with gold, and we go to less glorious silver. And then we go to less glorious bronze or brass, and then we go to less glorious iron. In other words, there's a, a decline that's going on here in the world. There's a decline that's going on in the human race. Now this, of course, is just the opposite of the humanistic view of mankind. The humanistic view is we're making progress. We're getting better and better. And one day, we're going to be conquer every single problem that has ever existed. It's just a matter of time. Most human beings operate somewhat on the idea that, that we will get better and better and that we will get stronger and stronger with time. The truth is, while we may be getting better in some ways, we're actually crumbling from within right now. Why? It's all clay. It's clay mixed with iron. 
Because as a whole, the human race, you know what? The human race is still rebelling against God. We are still trying to build our own tower as we in unison sing John Lennon's Imagine. It's the Ballad of Babylon. I'm sorry if you like the Beatles or John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. That's the Ballad of Babylon right there. It's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. I know it's a good song, but it's full of garbage. Imagine there's no countries. It's not hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions. Uh, this is Klaus Schwab's favorite song right here, right? World Economic Forum. By 2030, you'll own nothing and be happy. That's their vision for us. Imagine there's no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. And of course, the chorus. You may say I'm a dreamer, definitely. But I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. I hate to say, John, but that's never going to happen in Babylon. Never. The world will only be one when Jesus Christ returns and manifests his kingdom in all of its power, in all of its glory. And this is exactly, this is exactly the next thing we read about in, in Daniel 2 here. Look at verse 44. In the time of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. So the rock cut out of the mountain is really the last kingdom in the prophecy, the kingdom of God, which is, of course, the, the focal point of the whole dream. Ne Nebuchadnezzar's not the focal point. No, any other kingdom that follows after that, he and all the other great kings that would follow are only spectators of what's center stage, what will be center stage, the kingdom of God. And Daniel reveals here five characteristics about the kingdom. Number one, it's God's creation. All the other kingdoms... Babylon, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, the creation of man. This one, the creation of God. It's set up, not by man, but by God. Number two, it's an indestructible kingdom. Verse 44 says, which shall never be destroyed and never shall be left to other people. The Babylonians left their kingdom to the Persians. The Persians left their kingdom to the Greeks. The Greeks left their kingdom to the Romans. But this kingdom will be left to nobody because it'll never end. It's an indestructible kingdom. Thirdly, it's a rising kingdom. Daniel says that God's kingdom will be set up in the days of these kings. Now, what does it mean when he says that? In the days of these kings. Who are these kings? Well, the kings of these empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. So what that basically means is, is that the establishment, the beginning of God's kingdom will run parallel and, and unnoticed by the great leaders of history 
even unnoticed when the king himself came to earth during the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, and proclaimed as he started his ministry, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So each kingdom rose and fell, but the kingdom of God continued and will continue and continue more to rise and rise and rise until the light of the full day. And it's an all-victorious kingdom and an eternal kingdom too because it'll break in pieces and consume all the other kingdoms. Verse 44, it will stand forever and it is a universal kingdom. The rock that struck the statue became a great mountain and it filled the whole earth. Now, you have to realize that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream here, the rock not only represents the kingdom of God, but also the king of the kingdom. We know that. Scripture says, he is the rock from which water flowed in the desert. He is the stone that the builders rejected that has now become the chief cornerstone of God's building. He is the rock upon which the church is built, Matthew 16. And he is the rock that will one day return to crush the kingdoms of this world at his second coming. And it's important at this point to kind of pause and remember, these verses are are not just verses about the future. They're verses that were intended to encourage the Jews after they left the exile of Babylon and went back and and began to, to rebuild. It was intended to encourage them after their exile was over, but they're intended to encourage us while we are in our exile away from our ultimate home in heaven. And we need encouragement. Just like Daniel and his friends faced very challenging circumstances that were beyond human ability to overcome, we too, in our lives, face circumstances. We face circumstances in life, some lesser, some greater. And they are beyond our ability to overcome. But like Daniel, I love this phrase over and over, we have a God in heaven and who hears our prayer if we will only turn to him in prayer. Remember what happened to Daniel in his crisis? What's the first thing he did? What's the very first thing that he did? After he asked for more time, he does what? He goes into a season of prayer. If we will do that, if we will seek God with all of our heart, He will hear us from heaven. He will meet us where we're at. He will take care of us. He will comfort us. He will meet all of our needs. The key, though, is that faith that goes to Him in prayer. He's just waiting for us to ask. We have not what? Because we ask not, the book of James says. We belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we may look at things in our life and it seems impossible, but Jesus said this, what is impossible with man is, impossible with man is possible with God. And we're not going to be shaken either because we have a kingdom that can't be shaken. We have a king that can't be shaken. If we just seek first the kingdom of God, he'll take care of everything else in our life. He'll take care of everything. But the key is seek first. The king. Seek first, not second, not third, first. Now, after Daniel revealed the dream, Nebuchadnezzar had a reaction. Verse 46 says this Then Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid honor 
to him and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of all gods and the Lord of all kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. And then the king placed Daniel in a high position and he lavished many gifts on him. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon, and he placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, he remembers his team. Got to remember the prayer team. He, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. God transformed the king's wrath into praise. And a chapter that began with Daniel under the sentence of death ends with him sitting in the king's court with a very, very nice promotion, I might add. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's response was to fall prostrate before Daniel, to honor Daniel as God's servant, and to admit that Daniel's God was the God of all gods. But I want you to know, and we'll see this as the Daniel proceeds. In spite of this, this moment, in spite of that confession, he did not call on God, Daniel's God, for mercy. He simply said he is the God of gods. But unlike Daniel, who went to God to call on God for mercy, verse 18, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't turn to God for mercy. He simply makes this admission. He has an experience with God but it doesn't lead to a conversion. He was awed, but not converted. It's possible to have an experience with God, but not be saved, not enter his kingdom, not be forgiven our sins, not receive the gift of eternal life. It's, it's possible. You can have a great moment with God, but unless that great moment turns into repentance in faith, you will go on your way unchanged, impressed with the one true God, but not converted. Jesus said in John chapter 3, no one can see or enter the kingdom of God unless they are born again. In other words, there's... There is a, a spiritual experience that takes place. There is a second birth. Just like we are born physically, we must be born spiritually. That's what Jesus means by that. To enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born a, a, a second time. To be forgiven, to be saved. To have the gift of eternal life, we must be born again. And here's the thing about it. You can't earn or deserve or merit this spiritual birth. You can only receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where a lot of people get hung up, a lot of people. I'm thinking of somebody in my life right now, over and over and over again, I've tried to communicate what the grace of God is in the salvation offered to us through Jesus Christ. And over and over and over again, this person reasserts his own works as payment for God's forgiveness. Sometimes I just wonder, why can't he see it? Why? A lot of people get hung up there. You know, 
to enter the kingdom of God. They think they can enter the kingdom of God by doing something. You know, it's kind of like entering a room. You have to do something to enter the room, right? You have to open up the door. And that's the, the idea that many people have about a relationship with God. You have, to, you have to open up the door to God by doing something, by being a good person by being confirmed, by taking communion, by being baptized, by joining the choir, or a dozen other things. The whole point is they all come down to you have to be good enough to earn it and deserve it. You have to do something to earn or merit God's gift of salvation, God's gift of forgiveness. But to enter the kingdom, you have to be born. And you can't make yourself be born, just like the first time. You couldn't produce that first birth. It happened to you. Now listen, that's Christianity. The birth happens to you. Salvation is something, forgiveness is something, the gift of eternal life is something that happens to you, and it happens to you when you simply believe the gospel. And the gospel is this, that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's standard of right and wrong. And that God is a holy God who must judge our sin. But instead of judging our sin, he sends his son to the earth, the incarnation, born of a woman, to live on this earth, and then to die on the cross as our substitute. So instead of me bearing the penalty of my sin, instead of you bearing the penalty of your sin, Christ comes, one who had no sin, the perfect, sinless humanity of the Son of God, dies on the cross as our substitute in our place. And because he himself had no sin, death could not hold him. And so after he paid our penalty, after he bore our penalty, he rose from the dead. And the Bible says if you believe that he did that for you, that if he died as your substitute and that he rose again from the dead, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will receive the gift of eternal life. But it's by believing when you believe, the birth takes, something happens to you. The Lord enters your life, His Holy Spirit indwells you, but it's something God does. You can't be good enough to earn it, and you can't be bad enough to lose it. It's based upon God's love for you that changes not, but you have to believe. You have to take it a step further than Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> I know your God is the real God, all right? But is he your God? Is Jesus Christ your Lord? You say, Pastor, this, this is a church. Why are you giving such a, an invitation? Aren't we all believers here? Yeah, maybe. But I have found that there's a lot of people that think they're a believer because they prayed a prayer. That doesn't make you a believer. Might have been part of it. You don't become a believer by praying a prayer, by being baptized, or by taking communion, or by being confirmed, or by any other thing. 
You become a believer in Jesus Christ by faith in what he did on the cross for you. He took your place, substitution. No sin in him, so he rose again from the dead to make you right with God. He died the death we should have died so we could live the, li the life that he's called us to live. And he lived that for us too. When he came to this earth, he perfectly obeyed God's law. And when you believe in him, you know what happens? Not only is your sin forgiven, but he says, here's my righteousness. Here's the righteousness I earned by perfectly obeying God's law. It is yours, and now it has become your point of contact with God. So from now on, when God looks at you, he sees his son. Now, you can't get much better than that. In fact, you can't. But you have to believe. So if you never really, if you don't know for sure, I want to lead you in a confession this morning. It's not about walking an aisle, nothing wrong with that. It's not about praying a prayer, nothing wrong with that. Sometimes those things become replacements for what it is about. Believing, faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. Let's make that confession this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross for my sin and that he was raised from the dead to make me right with God. I repent of my sin, of trusting myself. I put all of my trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ forevermore. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. All right. Let's all stand. Well, we'll pick up here in following lessons. I don't know how far we're going to go in Daniel, but uh, I think we'll at least get through Daniel 6. So come back. Hear the word of the Lord. Amen. All right. God bless you. Have a great Sunday. If you have time, hang out for a while for fellowship. If not, travel safe. you've done
together now and for 